Today, okay, the Lord uh, put like a vision in my head, uh, a stitched together, if you ever seen those videos that kind of like are appended one onto the other, a stitched together vision of three instances in which I was watching, uh, two of them were young people, and one of them was a mixed crowd of adults and young people play tug of war. Now you've seen this, the big fat rope that's like about this big around, and it's about 40 feet long, and it's got the little ribbons, and they pull with all their might, and uh, and you try to kind of match the sides, whatever. And the truth is, when you start to watch it, you really don't know who's going to win. I mean, you look at both sides, and they're pretty evenly matched. And and um, I figured, as I was watching these things in my mind's eye in preparation for the sermon, that the Lord was showing me that there are three factors, essentially, in who wins uh, the average game of tug-of-war. Uh, now, obviously, weight is a factor. And so everybody wants the big guys. And if you look at a team, and it weighs you know, 500 or 1,000 pounds more than the other team, then you would thoroughly expect that team to win. Then muscle, strength, just downright strength is a big factor. Uh, so if you look at this team, you say, well, like this team over here is definitely, you know, more muscular, stronger, has, could pull or push or lift more than this team over here, then you would expect this team over here to win. But it was the third factor that God was really pointing out to me because as I was seeing those kind of visions or remembering what those instances, in every case, as the tug-of-war game went on, people's feet were slipping on the ground. One of those cases that I'm remembering specifically, some, some, of, the young, some of the young adults who are in this room were there, and we were at an annual meeting for Northwest Ohio Baptist Association, and they basically were having a tug-of-war contest, and all of our young adults and teenagers went in there, and a few of our adults and RJ went in there and like that, and they formed a team, and they were competing in the tug-of-war contest. Uh, but it occurred that several of our young people were wearing what you might call the wrong shoes. And so, for example, Ricky, who's very strong and heavy, and, uh, you know, and you really would expect him to do really super well, his shoes were slipping on the grass pretty bad, and so he really could not bring to bear the strength that he possesses or the weight that he has. At the same time, in all three of those cases, you could see people, they're doing everything they can to clench down on that rope, and their hands are slipping, and the guy in the back is wrapping the rope around him as he's the anchor and trying to make 100% sure he's not going to lose it, and so on. And so what I realized that God was showing me as I was drilling down on those three instances, uh, two of which were, one of which was at Seneca Lake with the youth group, and the other one was uh, Camp Buchanan, and then that one was at the annual meeting, is that God was showing me that it's really about the grip. Now, a man who can bench press, uh, you know, 300 pounds uh, probably is going to outpull uh, a lady who can bench press 80 every day of the week. But if he can't grip the rope, that's not so. If you put lard uh, or if he's holding out, his end is slippery in some way, he might be able to bench press 300 pounds, but he can't pull with his strength because he's slipping or if his shoes are slipping on the ground, that kind of thing. So this sermon today then... Uh, which I think God pointed me to, is, is unique in a way. In fact, if you've been sitting under my teaching for the last 20 years, you'll realize I've never preached a sermon structured like this ever before, if you, if, unless you maybe missed one somewhere and it happened to be. But So I want you to bear in mind then that God is calling us in the kingdom of God to get a grip. Okay. So there is a word in the New Testament that, um, that means to take a good hold on something or to take a good grip. And you don't really care what the word is, and probably nobody does in the Greek, but I'm going to say it just because I like the sound of it. It's eulab ace. Okay? And so uh, 
three instances of this particular word that means to get a good grip occur, and I'm going to break them down for you. We're not going to go there and read them. I'm just going to tell you this story real quick, but we are going to read from Scripture before we're through. Okay? So the first one is the story of a man named Simeon. Simeon was like a prophet. He was serving in the temple of the Lord when Jesus was a baby, and Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple, and Simeon comes in. Now, God had promised Simeon that he would see the Messiah, the consolation of Israel, the one who would save all people from their sins before he died. And he comes in and he blesses the baby and speaks to Mary and Joseph and so on. This story is in Luke chapter 2 and in verse 25, Simeon is called a devout man. Wouldn't you like to be called a devout man? Now in proper English or simple English, to be devout means that you're uh, focused on or all in for your faith or for something else. For example, if you're a devout watcher of football, you make time in your schedule, you set everything apart, etc., and you think football is really worth a lot. So Christians would want this word, devout, to be applied to us that is there, and that word is eulabes. That's the word. It means to take a grip well, or to take something well, to have a firm hold on it. So Simeon's only qualification... The only thing that makes him eulabes or devout is that he was looking for the consolation of Israel. The text says he was looking for the consolation of Israel. So you could say he was devout because he was still looking or because he was specifically looking for the consolation of Israel. He was looking for the right thing, right? So looking for the consolation of Israel then is what makes him devout. Now go to Acts chapter 2 verse 5. And Acts chapter 2 verse 5 is the beginning of the scene of Pentecost. It's when the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out and from that moment on, God's Holy Spirit takes up residence in everybody that gets saved. Everybody that believes in Jesus Christ as Lord means he tells you what to do when you do it. And Savior, that means he paid the price for your sins. Okay? So in Acts chapter 2, this, this is what's happening. Okay? They are speaking tongues. They are talking in languages that they do not know. The people who are gathered in Jerusalem for the festival are called devout. Okay? They are called eulabes that they have taken a grip, a good grip, on something. All right? They've come to Jerusalem to worship God, and they're there, and they begin to hear them speaking in their own tongues, even though they're from all over the world, and they, their only qualification for being devout is they ask the question, what does this mean? They say, what does this mean? That they're all talking, we come from all over the world, we can't even talk to each other, we don't share the same language, except maybe if we all try to talk in Koine Greek, which was like a merchant tongue. Right, And so they said, we can't even understand each other hardly, but they're speaking, and we can all hear them, even though we can't understand each other because we all speak different languages. And they said, what does this mean? Then in Acts chapter 8, verse 2, in chapter 8 of Acts, Stephen is stoned. He tells the story of how now the Jewish people have stoned their own Messiah, how they have killed Jesus, who was the Son of God, God in the flesh. And he is stoned there, and this is where Paul is standing by, for, at this time called Saul. He's standing by and he's holding the cloaks of those who are stoning Stephen. And it says a great persecution breaks out on the land. But at that time, there were some devout, eulabes, there were some men who came and took Stephen's body and they buried him. And their only qualifications for being called devout here are that they buried him and they lamented Stephen. Now notice that they lamented Stephen while this huge persecution persecution was breaking out, okay? 
So as Christian men or women, we ask ourselves, what do we need to do to be called devout? And from these standards, from these examples, what we need to do is ask the right questions. What's your calling? What has God given you to do? What, are, what am I supposed to do? And then if you get the answer, live it out. And if you don't, keep asking. That's basically it. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to be in this lifetime? And if a person continually asks that question and lives it out, the answer, if they get an answer, or lives out the question, if, that's the, if they're stuck there, then they could be called devout based on these examples. What is God like? How do we glorify God? Right? How do we take a good grip on these questions and their answers so that God can apply our weight and our strength to the task that God has given us. Because you can be the strongest person in the room, but not able to lift because you don't have a grip. You can be the smartest person in the room, but not able to figure out the problem because you don't have a grip. So the question is, how do we get a grip? And in fact, the scripture is calling us to get a grip. Three easy points. The first one is, don't get stuck on the wrong question. So there's, a, there's I was watching a show on TV and um, on this show, they were asking, uh, he was asking questions of God. The show is called An Interview with God. It's available on Netflix. If you like it, I, if you think you would like it, I would definitely recommend it. Uh, it's rated PG. There's no, no violence, no nudity, no bad language, no nothing like that in it. And it's about a reporter who's struggling in his faith. He is a Christian man by his own profession, and he gets a chance to interview God. I recommend it. In that story, there's a moment of time at which God says, you're asking me all the wrong questions. And this is the problem. People are asking, so people ask the question, what is the meaning of life? Or how do I live happy? Right? If you get stuck in the wrong questions, you have a problem. Okay? In the Bible, we're going to read from Romans chapter 10. Amen. Can somebody say amen? amen. All right. This is God's word. Thank you, Jesus. Right? It's not my word, it's God's word. Okay, and so we're going to read from Romans chapter 10, and Paul is talking to the church at Rome, and he is explaining this piece, what I'm talking to you about, not getting stuck on the wrong question, and then he even goes on to talk about kind of what we should do instead. So Romans 10, beginning verse 1, says this, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. He's talking about the Jewish people who had not accepted Jesus. He really wanted to see them get saved, and he was one himself. Verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. In other words, they had a passion to follow God. They loved God, wanted to do what God wanted them to do, but they, they couldn't get a grip. They couldn't do it. They never got traction. They were never doing it. So much so that they would kill Jesus when he came. Verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. In other words, they didn't do it the way God wanted it. It done. Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You no longer have to become righteous by following the rules, is what he's saying. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. In other words, you, you will succeed, live, go to heaven based on how perfectly follow the law if you're following the law to become righteous. Which, by the way, you will fail, which means you will not go to heaven. That's what Romans 3.23 reminds us, because we all fail. Right? We all make mistakes. We all have sin. Right? So he's saying that would be the way. Moses tells us, if you follow the law, follow it perfectly, you'll get righteousness that way, and you'll live by that righteousness. 
Verse 6 says, But the righteousness based on faith speaks thus. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. See, there's a question, and he's saying, don't do that. Don't get stuck on the question, who will ascend into heaven? Seven. Or, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Don't get stuck on that question. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. So in other words, he says, get, get a grip on that which we are preaching to you. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, which means he tells you what to do and you do it, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Verse 10. For with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, because this is true, listen to it, because this is true, the woman who was running from the tsunami and could have ran to the mosque or could have ran to the Christian church and the Christian church was on the low ground and everyone was, even people who didn't believe in Allah were running to the mosque because it was on the high ground and potentially the only hope of being saved from the tsunami, which was flooding the land 20 feet high. When God told her, she said, I know Allah will not save me. And she said, I believe the Christian God might. So she prayed, not believing in God. She said, God, if you're real, save me and I'll serve you for the rest of my life. Now, what kind of knowledge did she have about God? What kind of knowledge, what faith did she have? How much did she learn? How much Bible had she read? Next to nothing. How much weight did she have? Very little. How much strength did she have? Very little. But just enough to know she didn't want to die from the flood. She reached out to God and said, God, if you'll save me, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. And God said back to her, run to the Christian church building. So she ran to the Christian church building, which was on the low ground, which when the tsunami hit, did not flood and she survived and has spent the, the 20 years after that, 15 years after that, whatever it's been, serving God for the rest of her life because the Christian God saves. You don't need big weight or big strength or big brains to figure this out. You just need to get a grip. Don't get stuck in the wrong questions, but listen to what God is saying and then put whatever it is you know of God into practice. Now, don't hear me saying that you can just then go, oh, okay, fine, I know this one little bit, I believe in Jesus, so now I don't need to worship God, I don't need to serve God, I don't need to go to church, I don't need to do all of these things. That is a falsehood. That is wrong. When you let the truth of God take up residence in you, you get a grip. And here's the blessing. You get more strength and more weight every day in the kingdom of God. That's how it actually works. Paul's saying, don't get stuck on the wrong questions. Get a grip on the answer. But notice, it's get a grip on the answer even when it's hard. So here's our second point. Get a grip on the answer. You get a grip on the answer because you will be saved. And then you can be the bearer of the good news. So we get a grip on the answer. I submit to you, if you were asking the question, who may ascend to heaven? The answer is me, you. We may ascend to heaven. How? Through Jesus Christ. Get a grip on the answer. And then knowing that answer, we can go and share it. But getting a grip on the answer, we become bearers of that good news. Even when it's hard. Devout men get a grip and live accordingly. Remember those men who buried Stephen? They had exactly one qualification that made them devout. One qualification that the Bible would say that they had gotten a grip on the truth of God. And it was that they went and buried Stephen. Eh, 
Anybody could have done that. That they lamented him. Anybody could have done that. So what was it? It was that they buried Stephen and lamented him while the temple servants were going around and getting anybody who showed any signs whatsoever of being a Christian and persecuting them many times unto death, taking their lands, throwing them in jail, locking up their children, selling their children into slavery. They were doing all of these things to Christians. And at that time, these men came and got Stephen's body and they buried it and they lamented him, which is a very clear sign that they cared about him, which is a very clear sign they might be Christians, which could have gotten them taken out. So while the persecution was going on, they became bearers of what they knew to be true. They let their strength and their grip affect the life around them. They took Stephen, they buried him, and they lamented him. This brings us already to our conclusion, but we're not done. By any means, the conclusion is is devastating if you're not a follower of Jesus in earnest and potentially life-giving for you. And if you are a follower of Jesus, the conclusion is how to get a grip. There are two other words that are translated, uh, could potentially be translated devout in the New Testament. And the King James translates all of them as devout. And they are, in a way, devout, but in a way they're not. Um, then NASB translates three of the occurrences not as devout, but as God-fearing. And I'll explain that in a minute. So first of all, these two other words, they don't mean to take hold of something, to get a good grip. They mean either properly revering something. To revere something is to love and fear it, right? So it's properly revering something or just revering something. That's what the two other words mean. So you see the difference, right? You can revere God. I love God and I fear God, but I don't got a grip. There are people living in their houses that don't go to church, don't serve, don't give, don't work in the kingdom, don't do anything for God. And they will say, I love God. I know I'm going to heaven when I die because I love God and he loves me back. And at least half of that is true. God does love everybody. But whether or not you love him back, if you love him, you'll follow his commands. That's what it says. And so there's a question about this person who says they love God but if they love God and fear God, you'd think they would get rolling, right? You'd think, well, if I don't do something here with what I know to be true, that could be a problem. So these two words are properly revering, like revering in a good way, or just revering. That's what they are. The first three instances, I'm going to explain to you basically, all right? So the first man was Cornelius. Cornelius was called a devout man. Now, it literally says right in the text in Acts 2, uh, 10-2, that he was called a devout man because he feared God. He gave a lot, a lot of money, property, everything. So he feared God and he gave a lot and he prayed to God continually. And for that, he was called a devout man. Now, a little bit later in that same chapter, there is a soldier who serves Cornelius and he is called a devout man. Now, there is only one qualification that this man is given, that he was called devout. And it was that he was always there. He was always there. He was always following around Cornelius, able to be used, willing to do whatever. We have a thing in the kingdom of God where people say, I'll do whatever is needed. And then you call on them and they're busy. Or maybe they're not. They actually do step up and they'll do whatever is needed. You can be considered devout based on that one verse if you'll just literally, not just figuratively like say I'll do whatever is needed but you'll actually do whatever is needed so then you say I'll do whatever is needed and they say well you scrub the you know grout in the bathroom with a toothbrush it's gonna take about five hours and you're like yep I'm, I said I'll do whatever is needed I'll do it will you will you clean the toilets uh, you know make sure that's all done yeah I'll do it I said I would do it. I'll do it right will you pick up all of this garbage it's gonna take about 10 12 hours clean up the whole neighborhood and garbage yep I'll do it I said I'll do anything I'll do it and the list just goes on and on 
But people say, I'll do whatever. Will they actually do whatever? According to this guy, this guy was called devout because he was always there. Not a devout because he was a follower of God necessarily, because he was always there with Cornelius doing whatever was needed. Paul called Ananias. So Paul, blinded on the road, goes into town, and this guy Ananias comes to save him. Now, way later in chapter 22, Paul is giving the summary of the story, and he says that Ananias was devout by the standard of the law. Now, all three occurrences here are the word that means devout in a good way, or God-fearer, okay? So, revering. These three men are given the title of devout as if they were properly revering. So what I'm saying is, that was Acts 22, 11 to 13, by the way. What I'm saying is that this measure of devoutness, God-fearing, re properly revering, is always measured by faith-based works. Do you believe and what does your belief lead you to do about it? That's the question. Now there are three other instances all right, I'm going to give you the basic summaries of them. Now, these ones are just revering, not revering like in a good way necessarily, that, that little piece that makes it good revering or um, correct revering is left off. It's just revering. Those three I just mentioned to you, they were all uh, also translated devout. Now, we've got this one is not translated devout in the NASB. It's translated God-fearing every time, and here they are. The first one is in Acts 13.50. Obviously, Paul is preaching, and it says the, the, the others came in, the Jews came in, and stirred up the devout. And it put an end to the preaching of the gospel. You hear me? Paul was preaching the truth that the Gentiles could be saved, telling the truth about Jesus, the people who were saved. And God-fearers, people who said that they believed in God, said that they loved God, rose up and stopped him. Stopped the people. So here are... God-fearers, if you will, devout people who get stirred up and they stand in the way of kingdom progress. Acts 17, 1-4. Here it is again. Now this is getting into, this is getting to Athens and Paul is preaching. And there were there, those there who be believed in God. They feared God. They supposedly re revered. Um, but they were very few in number. But there were those there who had a lot of questions as well. And so the God-fearers were divided. He preached the gospel. Some of them said, yeah, Let's hear this. What are you talking about here? I want to know what this is about. This sounds like it might be right. And some of them said, we want nothing to do with this. And they mocked him. And So the God-fearers were divided. The gospel was delivered. There were those who said they loved and feared God. And they were divided. Some stood for the gospel and some stood against it. Then in Acts 17, 16 to 32... We see the God-fearers divided again. Now, this is where he's actually at the Areopagus, and he's telling the story, and he tells the story, and, some of, and he talks about how devoted they are, how fearful and reverent they are, right? And then some of them go, oh, wow, this is truth. This is something we really need to drill down on. And some of them go, what is this fool talking about, resurrection? And so the gospel is delivered, and they're divided. So the crux of the problem here is found clearly displayed in the words of that first described devout man that I mentioned. What was his name? The first one today that I mentioned. Say it again. Close. Simeon, right? It's Simeon, the prophet. So you, so somebody got a grip, right? What I'm saying is in Acts chapter. I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 2, Simeon is described as devout. I already told you that. 
But listen to what Simeon then says as a devout man to Mary and Joseph. And I'm going to go there and read verses 33 through 35. So this is the occasion of Jesus' dedication. Okay? So we're in Luke chapter 2, and it's 33 to 35, and it says, And his father and mother were amazed at the things they were, that were being said about him. So Mary and Joseph were amazed at what was being said about Joseph. 34, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon said that when Jesus came, when Jesus became clear, when the truth was made evident, when the gospel was delivered, it would divide the God-fearers. It would divide those who could be called devout from those who actually were devout. You follow? You've got to get a grip. If you're not in it yet, jump in right now and understand. You've got to get a grip. The part of you that wants to fight for what's right, that gets mad when things don't go the way you think they should, that part that wants to stand up and make things around you better can chafe against Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. Or you can get a grip on the real Jesus who was the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God, our Lord who was present at the creation, and indeed nothing that was made was made unless it was made through him, chose to take on the form of a suffering servant. And when he desires it, so must we. The part of you that aches and suffers now and yearns for redemption Oh, I can't stand this anymore. Oh, I just don't know why my life is this way. Oh, I can't, I can't do it. We, need, we yearn for redemption. That part of us can chafe against the fact that Jesus, God in the flesh, begged God the Father for another way. And no other way was forthcoming. Or you can get a grip on the fact that justice demands the payment of a price and there is no remissions of sin without the spilling of blood. Jesus died indeed had to die to pay for sins. You and I could not. If you start paying for your sins, you will pay them for an eternity. But Jesus paid for sins, which he could do because he didn't have any sin. And sin is that bad. That little white lie that you told, that sin is that bad. It doesn't just cover your butt. It doesn't just get you where you're trying to get to or make you feel better, make somebody else feel better, or you don't cause a conflict between you and them, or all of those other things that a little white, my, little white lie might try to accomplish. What it actually does is it dismisses the God of the universe. It says, I know God wants me to get a grip. I know God wants me to be good. I know God wants to take care of everything and be in charge. I know he's on the throne. But just this one time, for the sake of convenience, I'm going to forget all of that and just tell this lie. Sin is that bad, and salvation is that good, that the God of the universe would take on flesh and die on a cross because sin demands the payment of a price when it comes up against justice. You can chafe against the call of God to come apart from this world, to leave behind things of this world that you like, 
that connect with you in some way, that your eyes continually veer off to, that your flesh wants, that fills you so you don't feel that attention deficit disorder kicking in. You can chafe against the call of God to come apart from this world and to instead walk with him and for him, but you really need to get a grip on the fact that the here and now really continues to exist for just one reason, and that is so that people can grope around for him and finding him realize that he was not so far away ever. And we can get a grip. You can put it down, you can put it away, you can say no thank you, you can walk away, you can lock yourself in the closet while you pray, you can get a grip, you can do whatever is necessary. But some so-called devout people will be offended by the same Jesus whose name became the name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved. They will instead be dividing Coming to the point of alleged God-fearing and good works, they will refuse to go any further. Ask yourself, is that you? They will latch on to a certain question or a certain excuse to not put all that they are on the line. I'm too busy. I have too much work to do. I'm, uh, I'm unavailable. Why should I have to do it? Someone else will take care of it. But what about this doctrine? What about that verse? What does it say there? What does that exactly mean? I'm still struggling with. Knock it off. That's all an attempt to keep from actually getting a grip. And no matter how heavy you are in the kingdom or how strong you are in the kingdom, if you stay there and don't get a grip, you'll never be used for what God can use you for. In failing to get a grip, they will destine themselves for the get away from me, I never knew you crowd instead of the well done, good and faithful servant crowd. Now in many cases, all the while, they will be saying, I'm definitely in the well-done, good, and faithful servant crowd because I spend my time considering the most important things in life. I, I give some of my time. I give some of my money. I give some of my sweat, blood, and tears. And they will say, I'm going to make it in for sure. I'll be okay. Jesus loves me and I'm devout. But are you devout, revering? Or are you devout, revering correctly? Or are you devout, you've gotten a grip? You understand. Will you get a grip today? That is the question. Will you take Jesus exactly as he is? Will you surrender to his will for your life? A scene from the movie Bruce Almighty, which I've watched a couple of times, and I have, you, have to watch, you have to be careful and either watch it edited for TV or, or just kind of really keep your guard up because it's got quite a bit of vulgarity in it language-wise. But there's a scene where he's been acting as God for quite a while, and eventually he realizes he just can't do it. He's, he cannot, he doesn't know how to do it. He, he just, with all the power and all the knowledge that he has, he still can't do it. He's screwing up the world. And he's walking down the street and he kneels down on the road in the rain. And I'm not going to get the words exactly, but basically he puts his hands up and he says, Okay, God, I give up. He says, I surrender to your will. Your will be done. And it starts to get light where he is. And right after that, somebody knows the movie, what happens? He gets hit by a truck, right? And God, and then when he sees God, God says, you can't kneel down and pray in the rain on the expressway without getting hit by a truck. But in that moment at which he was getting a grip, he said, okay, I surrender my will for my life and I want to do instead what you want me to do. Listen to me, I'm just telling you plainly, this is the very decision that Christians make that gets them saved. 
Which means if you came to the altar or you prayed in a, in a coffee shop or somewhere, you said, I'm accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And in that moment, you didn't get a grip. Nothing actually happened. You said words. Even if you were very careful to make 100% sure that you were ready, even if you were very careful to say, but when I do this, I'm going to be all in. I'm going to do it. Or if at times you were all in and then not all in, whatever, all of that might be true. Those people that Jesus said, get away from me, I never knew you. Before that, they claimed that they had cast out demons and healed in the name of Jesus. And Jesus did not correct them. He didn't say, no, you didn't. Say, so, yeah, you did it, but not in my name. Right? He didn't do that. What he said was, get away from me, I never knew you. They didn't get a grip. We've got to get a grip. This division, because this division is reality, you may have been here before. You may have been in this moment in time and before. Where you were thinking, I don't know, have I, am I really, whatever. As long as you're going, I don't know, have I really, whatever. Listen, you probably haven't. You may be revering, right? I recognize I should. Or you may be good revering. I, 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 I'm going to act on what I know to be true. But are you get a grip? Are you taking hold of that for which you were taken hold of, as Paul says in Philippians? And that's what we're called to. You must get a grip on the risen Savior and the ramifications of His saving grace. And you must do it now. Now here's the great blessing and the final thought. When you get a grip on what this means... Jesus gets a grip on you. Now that's important because Jesus never quits. Jesus never loses. Jesus never runs out of strength. If there is anybody with weight in the kingdom of God, it's Jesus. And God said, Jesus said that God had told him that no one would slip from his hand. If Jesus has got you, you're in. And if he doesn't, you aren't. It doesn't matter how firm your grip is. I have known men who had theological degrees. We won't know this side of heaven. But you know how many pastors and deacons, let me clarify what that means, men who were recognized by others as called by God, ordained to be pastors, men who were recognized by others as called by God to be deacons. You know how many men who were pastors or deacons realized they hadn't gotten a grip? Well, I don't know either, but I know many who have. It's time to get a grip. It's time to realize that the ramifications of what Jesus did can take all that you are, all your weight and all your strength and put it into application in the kingdom of God. And you're like, I don't know, I'm not that smart. It doesn't matter. Because the not that smart man, which if there was anybody in this room, I don't agree. By the way, I think you're all pretty smart. But that being said, if you say, I'm not that smart, the not that smart man who gets a grip will pull harder and do more than the very smart man who doesn't have a grip. The very smart man who doesn't have a grip probably has an excuse why he's not even on the rope. Because he doesn't want to pull. He doesn't want to work. He doesn't have to. He'll be the guy on the sidelines going, come on, pull! You got this! And when he loses, he'll say, well, they should have pulled harder. I told them what to do. Right? That's not getting a grip. You, may, you can even tell others how to get a grip. And they may get saved and get a grip and actually start following Jesus while you yourself have no grip. 
And the problem is, if down the road, if Jesus doesn't have a grip on you, and that happens when you first get a grip on this truth, if Jesus doesn't have a grip on you, then somewhere down the road, you will walk away. I have seen men that I personally, before I even knew anything about this, would have called devout, walk away. Men who serve Jesus by their own profession, day in, day out. Do you know, you know Billy Graham, probably heard that name? He preached probably to more people than anybody in the world has ever preached, with the possible exception of some folks who now have done a lot over the last like 20 years uh, over in Africa and stuff, and they get really big crowds, and so they might be catching up to him. But he preached in more societies and more people than anybody. After all that was happening, Billy Graham's right-hand man, the guy who traveled with him, saw, him, saw all those people getting saved, preached himself, and led supposedly led tens of thousands of people to Christ himself. He now, to this day, declares he is an atheist. I get it. It's a lot to say, I want, but I'm willing to submit my wants. I think I need, because listen, sometimes he may ask you to suffer. I think I need, but I'm willing to submit my needs. But it is exactly what the gospel says, because what did Jesus do? Did he want to die? Did he want to go to the cross? Did he want to be crucified? Did he want to be whipped within an inch of his life? This is the gospel you're called to. Choose this day whom you will serve. A risen Savior who can go through that and come out into eternity born again? And you can do the same? Or a feel-good God that will make you feel good every time you go to church on Sunday. And you'll be like, yeah, doing my part. And you might get to, you might even get to the point where you're tithing. And get this, you might even get to the point where you cast a demon out of somebody in the name of Jesus. Or pray for somebody's healing. Go like, I prayed for them, but they were miraculously healed. Yay, me. I'm following God. I'm devout because God is doing miracles for me and in me and around me and by me. God is using me. And all the while, no grip. Well, if you have no grip, then he's not holding you. If you have no grip and he's not holding you, then eventually he'll slip. I should say, eventually you'll slip. And when you slip, you'll lose the, that great battle of tug of war on the other side of which is Satan, and demons, and evil spirits, and the world system, and everything else, and you'll be pulled across that line right into an eternal abyss. In the meantime, you've got time. You've got time to wrestle with questions You've got time to find answers. But don't think you have forever. You may have tomorrow. You may not. You've got time right now. Will you get a grip? Will you say, okay, Jesus, I'll take you just as you are. I'll live for you just the best I possibly can. I'll let my old life fall behind. And you show me the way ahead. You be the way ahead. That's what it means to follow Jesus. We're going to have an invitation at this time, which means the praise team is going to lead us in a song, and then we're going to decide. You're going to decide. And if you decide, you can honestly decide, look, I already got it. I already knew this was the Jesus that I was following, that I had to do it. And then I wanted to do it, I needed to do it, I had to do it. If that's you, then, then you pray that others in this room will make that decision. If on the other hand you say, you know, like I've been up and down, I've been questioning, I've been wondering, and what if I have to, what if that happens, what if, what if, what if, I've not been sure, I've not really been locked in, 
then you get locked in. You say, okay, Jesus, I take you just as you are. This is a fact. Following Jesus, not always convenient. Following Jesus, not always everything you might want it to be. But following Jesus, eternally, is everything you want. It is the solution to every problem. He is the way and the peace of life, and no one comes out of the Father but through him. So would you stand with me and sing this song? Um, and then, if you're deciding and you respond, come just tell me, okay, Pastor Dan, I see it. I want to do it for the first time ever, or I, I said it before, but I want to do it in earnest and let nothing stand in the way. I want to get a grip today. Take hold. Do a good, get a good hold on
I'm not sure, you could probably do some research, but people started thinking that the word believe means to think something is true, and that just isn't so. To believe something is to let it affect you pretty much at every level, right? Uh, it becomes almost subconscious or unconscious as you rely on that truth. Somebody tells you something, and you take it as the truth, and don't even think about it, and then a few weeks later, you make your decisions, including that truth that they told you, and that's what's so damaging about gossip, for example, or uh, reminiscing over um, things, and you don't get the facts quite right, or whatever, is you can take that truth and make part of who you are in your decision-making process, and it can be very damaging in the future. For example, if you heard that somebody said something and it just wasn't true, then two weeks later you're you're operating under the fact that they said it and it wasn't even true. You might be expecting them to be somewhere, expecting them to be a certain kind of person, and they're not, whatever. Because you heard that they said it. That's why gossip is so damaging. One of the reasons. To believe is to let it affect you in every way is to get a grip. And I didn't pick the song. And she had already picked the song before the message was completed. And God does that. God is reaching to us all the time. If you were dangling over a cliff about to fall 500 yards, literally anybody that extended you a hand, you would reach out and get a grip. And God is extending you a hand. Will you reach out and get a grip? Take a hold on him. The woman who was following Jesus, they were all walking to go heal a young girl or whatever, and the father decided, I just touched the, the robe of Jesus, I would be healed. And she did, and she was. She didn't even get a grip, really. She just reached out and got a, just touched him for a moment. And Jesus said, who touched me? And the crowd of people said, who touched me? I felt power going, something happened. And then she was able to share, and she said, well, I did this all these years. I've been dealing with an issue of blood, and now I know I'm healed, and praise God. And, and she got saved because she was just willing to reach out. It's just all over. It's a get-a-grip theology. Read your Bible, study it, understand God wants you. In, in Acts 17, and you grope around to find him. So if you were searching for your keys in the dark and you felt something that felt like your keys, you'd grab it. He is the solution. He is everything. And if you reach around and feel something that, that might save you, something that might take you into eternity, something that might make you strong, something that might gift you, something that might inhabit you with the Holy Spirit of God, that might seal you forever to overcome every difficulty, even though you will have to go through difficulty, but He'll be with you, why would you not grab on? Why would you want to let others think you have grabbed on when you haven't? If you're still groping, then you, let's be transparent. I'm still groping. I want to get a grip. I'm going to get a grip. And when I get a grip, Jesus has a grip on me. Believe. And never be the same. Come with David. Trying to hold tears. Oh, and so, um, one thing I want to thank God for is this is a gripping church. Amen. And um, I'm not saying anybody doesn't want to, but you can reach out to any of us. I will reach out to you. I want to grip you. I want to share things with you. Um, don't ever be afraid to ask me. I'll come and talk to you. Um, I want to share my testimony, but be very quick. Everybody knows my story. They should know. It's a very heartbroken story. That's a horrible story. Like, it's not like I go home and I just, woe is me. Just heartbroken. All my life, I've, all I know is a lot of heartbreak. But God always being good. And people in my life and, and the love that I find in others. And, you know, it's, it's always going to be there. And um, I just wanted to share something 
last night. And um, once again, I also want to share a testimony. It wasn't for people here for the three years I've been here, probably four, I get my ears mixed up, but um, if it wasn't for people here, I wouldn't be gripping back on God again. And it really is not just here, but there are gripping churches. And God is always, you know, giving us gripping moments. It's always God. But this is a place where you can get your grip back. I want to give people a chance to encourage you. You can do that. Amen. But um, last night, I was praying with Dan. And it doesn't have to be Dan. I'm just saying, God just sometimes lets me go call Dan. And I prayed with him. And we were downtown, the library. And I just remember saying, like, God wants me here. And, and just the things that I thought that could not happen, not I will never sit here and ever say it's okay to get a divorce or a separation. I'm just saying that this is something that God is involved no matter what. You know, whether it's ignorance, mistakes, I don't know. But it happened. And it was like, well, I get to see my kids. Well, I be able to be the way that God wants to be for my kids. And um, I continually just see God involved in those moments. I was at the library and my daughter, Naomi, and to you it might mean nothing, but it meant a lot to me. And it already expands from today. But uh, last night, um, my daughter was downstairs. We were at the downtown line, the big one. Where I was upstairs, she was downstairs. And I was like, I didn't get to see my daughter. I was hanging out with my, my kids. And uh, I was like, I need to go see her. And uh, um, my ex, uh, she was like, she's like, she'll, she's fine. She's just down there hanging out with her cousin. I go, no, but I feel like I'm supposed to go see her. Like, I haven't said hi to her. And, you know, maybe she just wants me to let her know I love her because I do. And um, I just like, you know what, I'm going to go down there. I just feel like I'm supposed to go down there. And I was when I went down there, it was she was having a hard time trying um, to check out this book at the library. She forgot her address. She just had a hard time. And um, she looked up and she's like, "Dad, you're here." She's like, "I was actually hoping somebody would come down here and help me out with this." And I, I was gonna let her know, and she knows we have this connection, and it will never go away. That's God's grip, and that connection that we have is that I can share God with her. I said. I felt like I was so, God told me to come down and see you, and she won't say it like me, but she was like, yeah, I know, this is so cool. We kind of shared this moment where, like, God was telling me to come down to see you because that you needed me, and it was perfect, and because of that, and then did some of my sons, too, I could share more, but you guys want to hear really cool stories and testimonies I had, but because of that, today, my daughter, who, uh, you know, I didn't coerce her, I didn't move her to it. She shared a scripture verse with me today in a text. Awesome. And it was exactly a verse that I shared something. I said, I can't wait to share back to you what God said to me through that. And I was like, that connection has still spurned off. The Bible even says, and I think it is, I'm going to try, it's Hebrews. It's either 3, 4, or 5. But it says, spurn each other on to good works. And because I spurned her on to good works, she spurned back, but spurned just like you, like, and like, you know, like spurned, like you can do this pushing, like just one, like um, embers, like burning it up. She burned it back to me, this verse, and she said, you're welcome. And it also shows her that God is showing something to her as well. And the reason I share this, and I'll be real quick right this moment, is that I'm not asking anybody to do what I do. Just be who you are in Jesus. Amen. It don't matter if you like take notes and do what I do. It was just that the connection was that God had a grip on us. And the connection was that God has grip on everyone that's, like you said, like what the word says, and it was for Jesus, we couldn't grip what we wanted to, but that we can grip on, that we can continue on, and how bad it is or how ugly it is sometimes, 
and I know ugly now. And maybe I've known ugly all my life. I don't really matter. Because even if I know ugly, that beautiful, awesome, holy, righteous God was in the middle of it all. Yeah. And I am thankful for that every day. So I just finished with this. It's Griff on. We have brothers and sisters, you know, just reach out to them. Sometimes, you know, I'm just saying, I will reach out. I can't speak for everybody else, but I'm reaching out right now. And you talk to someone, share, please come to me. I would love to talk to you and share with you a way that you can get a grip on things, a way that you can think about things. But you could talk to anybody here. I thank God for everybody here. Listen to this list of songs that was chosen for today. Rain, All Bow Down, Forever We Sing Hallelujah, and Hold On To Me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for being at work in this service, being at work in our body, being at work in each one of us who have yearned for this kind of relationship with you even before uh, we knew it was possible. And some of us remember very clearly, just not that long ago, groping around in the dark, hoping for, for something, for someone. And some of us accepted Christ uh, decades ago. And uh, we've been up and down maybe, or maybe there might be somebody in the room who says, you know, since I accepted Christ over 20 years ago, I've been up the whole time. I've been gripping on and trying to do and, and trying to let him reign and be who he is. And, and, and praise God, we have a diverse set of people in, amongst such a small group of us. And uh, compared to the world's Christians at large, we hope that there are millions. Um, so, Father, we are so grateful that you take the time to act in us, to work, to do these miracles. We do ask you, Lord, to reign. And we do ask you to hold on to us. We do ask you to continue to show us your grace and mercy. Um, we ask you, Lord, to bless our time of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we have next coming around one after another. We're so grateful for these things that teach us to, to, to remind us that you are doing today. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much. So they are getting ready for baptizing, and so you got worship until we're ready. Kids will be coming back in. Not because of how 